Hi, Greg. Hey, Andrew. It's August 2nd, 2017. And for a second time in a short amount of time, we are not alone. No, sir, we are not alone. Welcome, heroes. You find yourself face to face with a handsome DM. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's good to be on the show, guys. Well, it's good to have you. Yeah, we're happy to have Roger Cowden on the show with us uh, to do an episode that people have been asking about for a while, uh, to do a episode talking about tabletop RPGs. And Really? Yeah, people have really been asking for it. So, uh, you know, I, I, I had some experience in this regard, and Greg has a little too, but I figure we really got to bring on a true Dungeon Master to really talk about this, you know, appropriately. Well, thank you. Uh, so, Roger, why don't you, like, give us some background on who you are and, like, what you're into? Um, well, yeah, I'm Roger. I guess that goes without saying. Um, I'm kind of, I guess, a multidisciplinary person. You know, I'm into nerd stuff, I guess. I wouldn't say as much as everybody else, but I, I don't, I don't know. I just, I cover a lot of subjects, so I don't really get too deep in any subject. You know, I like comics. I like video games. I kind of have my niches of video games that I like to play just like anybody else. And obviously I really enjoy D&D and role-playing games at large. Thank you, Roger. Uh, we're really happy to have you on. It's going to be great. You have a lot of experience in this topic. Uh, so why don't we talk about how you came to like traditional tabletop RPGs and like how long you've been playing, like your history with that. Actually, before we do that, why don't we explain for the uh, normies out there when we talk about tabletop RPGs, what we're talking about. Um, this is something that's been a kind of going through a bit of a renaissance lately, but this is um, a bunch of people generally sitting around a table live with each other in the same room. Um, there's usually dice involved, and uh, it's kind of a cooperative storytelling uh, type of game. This is when you see the kids on Stranger Things playing Dungeons & Dragons. This is the kind of tabletop role-playing game we're talking about. Um, not necessarily board games in the way that you might think of, like, Settlers of Catan, or other things your weird friends do on Saturday afternoon. This is uh, legit tabletop role-playing games. So I think did I, I think I clarified that. All right. Anyway, continue. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good yeah, point. Yeah, no, people. I think that pretty much is right on the nail. Great. All right, Roger. So question was, how did you come to tabletop RPGs, and like, how long have you been playing? What's your history with that? Um, I think I've been playing about 15, 16 years, maybe. Um, kind of hard to tell at this point. And, and pretty much I came about it as, uh, I guess most people my age came about it. Um, I just kind of ended up playing it. Uh, it was actually my best friend's older brother that was like, hey, let's just play this game called D&D. It's really fun. So we played a session of that. And then he immediately took me over to my first actual memory that I can remember of D&D, which is actually a tabletop game called uh, Legend of the Five Rings, I think. And I played uh, Yoshi the Wizard, who liked to charm sharks into helping him. And that's my earliest memory. <laughs> Probably pretty limited scenarios where charming a shark into helping you is going to be a useful Yeah, skill. it only had to come in handy once, really. <laughs> <laughs> so then how did you like evolve to becoming, you know, kind of like where you are today? And, and how did you... What brought what brought you into it, and like how did you convince all your other friends to start playing and grow from there? Um, I, I guess just like uh, anything, we become very obsessed with. Uh, it's just something that I kind of didn't stop doing. Uh, I just kept playing D and D over and over again. Eventually, I saw it as well. Hey, 
you know, I can only play with the same couple of people. If I want to play with more people, then I'm going to just have to get out there and ask people and say, hey, you want to play this weird game with me? It's kind of fun. And, you know, and it just kind of grew from there. And eventually now a lot of my friends play it. I guess that's how you hooked me. So, <laughs> yeah, really, that's the dream, I guess. <laughs> awesome. So why do you think that like tabletop RPGs are unique and important compared to video games or traditional board games? Uh, well, I mean, I think they teach a skill that we're kind of sorely lacking as as a culture right now, which is um, both critical thinking and I would say kind of an offshoot of that, which is like critical emotional thinking, where you're able to kind of put yourself in somebody else's shoes or, or able to act in a way that, or even think in a different way that's kind of counter to how you would normally act. I think that's, I guess, the importance of D&D. Um, Besides just purely entertainment. Oh, we got to dig deeper here. You just, you talked about, um, you know, uh, tabletop RPGs being a method for developing empathy, which is a, something our culture sorely needs. I'm not letting Andrew move on to the next uh, <laughs> next topic until you tell say a lot more about that. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, when, when you walk outside, most people just, um, they usually have only... Um, a couple ways they can think about an issue sometimes that's, you know, as part of say a religious mindset or say part of just a cultural mindset where they're like, I've only lived this, you know, this particular way. Whereas D and D might be able to put you in at least a different place. I mean, a lot of times that's a fantastic place, but still a different place. It kind of trains you to be able to be like, well, maybe my way isn't the best way, or maybe there's just another way of doing things at least, or maybe a number of ways of doing things. So I think people just kind of need to, uh, grabs that ability at least to think differently. I'm going to agree with you here, Roger. I think that's something that's really important and something I really like playing. D&D it pushes you to... I mean, sometimes you're playing like a pretty 2D character, like a scene-chewing villain or, you know, that classic chaotic neutral rogue. But oftentimes, especially as campaigns go on, you develop a history and you develop a whole character. And that's the biggest thing I try and tell people when I'm sitting down with like a, a new group for the first time and they don't really understand the point. And I'm like, you're trying to make not just you're not just playing a character sheet you're playing a different person and try and, and put and yourself in their shoes absolutely and i think it's it's the nuances is where you really develop that emotionally critical thinking it's easy to say um i'm playing this 2d care i'm playing the gumshoe but sometimes the gumshoe has sort of facets to his personality that you wouldn't really think of until you're actually in it and you're playing that person. It's the same thing where you view somebody on the street and you're like, ah, oh, this guy's just some guy. He's just some guy that likes punk music. Well, there's a lot of nuances to that actual person. There's a lot of things that goes into his life that you wouldn't normally pick apart or piece together unless you're, you're thinking that way. Right. It's the same reason I really like history, you know, history major. Like I always said before, I always think history is, I always say it's like, the biggest practice and empathy you ever have trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes from a hundred, 200,000, 10,000 years ago. So I think it's along those same lines. Absolutely. So Roger, as a, as a DM, which is dungeon master. Right. Um, and for those, you know, again, who are, aren't familiar, the dungeon master is kind of running the game, um, kind of standing in for God and fate and, uh, directing the players and, um, interpreting their, uh, die rolls and um kind of storytelling isn't the right thing but they're kind of setting the scenario and um managing all the non-player characters um so as a dm given what you've been talking about about you know uh the practice of empathy and kind of putting yourself in someone else's kind of mental shoes do you 
encourage, you know, players when you're starting a campaign, do you encourage them to kind of play against type and, and develop characters that might not be a great, no, not a, a comfortable fit for them in their, their real life? No, actually, uh, not as, not at first. Uh, I think it's more important to actually just kind of get used to giving yourself to the game. I know that sounds like kind of creepy and kind of intense, but I, I think people, when they come to the table, they're like, I don't feel cool. You know, I'm coming to the table and I, I have to act like a goblin or I have to act like an orc. And I'm just, I'm just really embarrassed. Yeah. And I see that across the board. And sometimes you just got to get in and be like, okay, I'm going to play this, this dwarf guy with a sword or an axe who wants to drink. And that's, that's their first baby steps. And I really encourage them to get comfortable because it only takes once or twice to fall flat on your face and not be comfortable with an experience. Mm -hmm. So you, you know, Start out in your comfort zone. Start with a character that, you know, you can comfortably inhabit. And then once, you know, you become a little bit more familiar with your play group and um, and, and the systems, then, then maybe it's time to start branching out. I mean, don't get me wrong. There is a phenomenon that happens almost universally across all people who play D&D for a time. You always play yourself. It, always, <laughs> it, it just always happens like that. So I think there's maybe a clear difference between playing who you are and playing what you're comfortable with. Because sometimes it's easy to play a stereotype. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like whenever I'm starting with a new group, I'm always sort of saying like, because they're like, we're trying to start a group at work, and I'm trying to talk to them, and like, and one one person's just like, I just don't get what I'm supposed to do with this character creation. I'm like, have you watched Lord of the Rings? You watched Harry Potter? Just like, pick your favorite character from that, and basically just <laughs> make them without their backstory, you know, a different backstory. But if you want to play like Gimli the dwarf, who's like kind of funny and you know, but doesn't really get it and likes to drink, like then play that. That's fine. If you want to play Legolas the sexy elf, like let's do that. But like just to get their feet wet to actually play it. And I think that people, in my experience, people with no experience in this, they pick it up pretty quick if they have an open mind and then they're already onto new character ideas that they would never have thought of the first time they sat down at the table. Yeah, I think um, D and D is kind of one of those things where a lot of people don't pick it up slow. I think a lot of people, when they start playing it, they see, I don't know how else to put it, the, the value of it. You know, they play it, and even if they have a, a bad session, usually they'll say, wow, this could be something really amazing. You know, there's not a lot of people that I see that are like, uh, well, I kind of don't like it, but maybe I'll get into it, you know? I would imagine the hardest part for a new player, and, and probably for a DM trying to act as a coach for your players, isn't necessarily people getting a, getting a grip on the rules, and the the kind of the systems of the game, it's getting them to kind of get back in touch with that just kind of imaginative play, which is something they probably haven't done since they were twelve years old. Yeah, sometimes it's it's hard to break that cycle of you know, hey, you have to do this, where instead you have you get to say it's okay to be creative, it's okay to come up with something completely unique that's just kind of silly, and just open up that part of your brain that's you know, okay, I'm imagining I'm in a room with six goblins, and, <laughs> uh, right? And I it, have to I have to come yeah. up with a reaction to this. Uh, so as Greg said, Roger, there's been kind of a renaissance when it comes to Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop RPGs. Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think people have all of a sudden gotten more interested in this again? I, I mean, yeah, there's absolutely just a wave of nostalgia for a lot of things. Um, listen to you guys talking about, you know, the eighties and stuff like that, like with stranger things, that's, it's absolutely a thing. People are just, for some reason are becoming very nostalgic with the eighties and Dungeons and Dragons is kind of an eighties thing, but I think more than that, um, people are receiving this very rich entertainment environment that we have right now, but Dungeons and Dragons gives you something that's completely unique, which is this 
3D storytelling scape that people can enter in, they can manipulate the medium within it, and, and no other entertainment really offers that experience. You can get close to it, but it's not as um, intimate, it's not as intense, and it's not as comprehensive. I agree. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Um, so I guess, uh, switch gears a bit, what systems have you played? Like, which do you prefer and why? And like, what systems are you enjoying most right now? And my systems, I mean, so for those normies out there, even though I thought we had a strict no normies rule on this podcast. <laughs> do we? Um, <laughs> it's hard to do sometimes. Uh, no, but so it's not just Dungeons and Dragons. Like Dungeons and Dragons is one iteration of tabletop board gaming. Um, there's different settings. There's different engines, meaning, meaning how the game works, the rules, uh, you know, what kind of dice you use, what what the different dice rolls mean and just how the whole thing is structured. There's a lot of different systems out there. So we're going to talk about a couple of different ones besides just Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, for me, whenever I'm, I'm talking about um, role-playing games, it's very easy for me to say D&D is a short term. Like I just found out that Dumpster actually is a, is a brand name for garbage cans. The dumpster <laughs> isn't actually a thing. It's the same thing with D&D. Um, what do I prefer playing? I like Pathfinder system. Um, I like it exactly for the reason that I wouldn't suggest to most people is because it's very complex. It's very cumbersome. It's a very weighty system that takes a long time to learn with a lot of ins and outs. But I think it offers the most um, structured creativity, if you would. Um, other systems I'm playing, other tabletop systems, I play a lot of Deadlands, which is a now defunct spaghetti Western horror game that's tabletop. Uh, Call of Cthulhu, I really like. That's strictly a horror-based system. and. and with with D and D and other role playing games, there's usually a genre that you're playing in that system. So D and D is very high fantasy, Lord of the Rings, Deadlands, as I said, is spaghetti western horror. Um, but there's other games that um, have completely different type of playsets. Like there's a game called Dread, which involves just a Jenga tower. There's there's no dice, there's no anything. Mm. You just you pull bricks to do different moves. If the Jenga tower falls, you're just dead, and it's like a single session type thing. Likewise, there's other um, tabletop games that uh, all the rules are on a single sheet of paper. And I've tried a couple of those that are kind of very bare bones. Um, and it offers a completely different experience from every other tabletop role-playing game. Yeah, I mean, I, I've played, you know, we started off with, so for those unaware, there was a kind of a sequence of Dungeons & Dragons versions that, you know, the first one came out, Dungeons & Dragons, then it was Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. And then, I don't know, it was a 2.0, 2.5, 3.0. Yeah, it just keeps going. And then really. going 3.5. 3.5 was what I started on. I think what Roger started on. Yeah, I mean, I was 3.0, but 3.0 and 3.5, basically the same thing. Yeah. And then Wizards of the Coast, who owns Dungeons and Dragons, among other things like Magic the Gathering and whatever else, uh, they made 4.0, which a lot of people did not really care for. And a lot of backlash. Yeah. A lot of backlash. It was very quote-unquote dumbed down, but streamlined is probably a better word to use. It kind of pulled a lot from, like, popular online role-playing games like World of Warcraft and things like that. Yeah, I've heard it described as very MMO-ish. But the important thing about 4.0, at least from the DMing perspective, is that um, it, it set the stage for 5.0, and I think it set the stage sort of for online role-playing because it hmm. um, it's it sets it up for D&D to actually be very efficient, which is actually really cool um they set everything up for the dm to kind of just roll in and not have to do so much homework which is very important in this game because you spend a lot of time sometimes outside the game just preparing things and making the story yeah uh so 
That's definitely true. And I've heard a lot of really good things about 5.0. I'm just about to start a campaign for the first time in Dungeons and Dragons 5.0. But at the time when 3.5 was switching to 4.0, a different company called Pezo started Pathfinder, which was sort of a spiritual successor to 3.5 and what a lot of people switched to. And it's actually, I think last I heard is more like sells more books and is more popular Mm -hmm. than Dungeons and Dragons at this point. Um, And they're still you know plugging ahead they've been around for a while now and now they're just launching their new one um in a space kind of space opera space fantasy setting called starfinder which i think roger's been messing with a little bit and i'm excited to play at some point but uh yes there's a lot of stuff out there a lot of options and and pretty much every uh franchise has some sort of offshoot usually d20 clone but sometimes not like star wars harry potter you know warhammer like all these things all have role-playing systems you can go play if you want so, and I think, again, I'll, I'll be the normie explainer. <laughs> um, so uh, the rule system for a role-playing game is, it's kind of two things at once. I mean, one is kind of a general setting. So Dungeons and Dragons has a fantasy setting and they will outline, these are the races that exist in the world. This is the types of magic that exist in the world. Maybe some, you know, major cities and kind of mapping that out. Um, but it also has a set of rules and they're not rules like a traditional, um, board game or video game. When you think about the rules of the game, it's really just a system of, um, determining the outcomes of actions. So it's a way of saying, okay, if character A tries to punch character B, how does that play out? Um, and it introduces an element of randomness, usually with dice, um and makes it so that the characters are a little bit limited in what their options are right if your character you know doesn't have the ability to fly you can't just say well i'll just fly above the room and you know get out of danger so it's it's not rules in the way that it dictates um for you roll the dice and then you move three squares and then you draw a card and um then the pay play passes to your left it's more of just almost like an operating system or a simulation of this virtual world um, that then you just kind of act out actions against. Yeah, I mean, really, at the end of the day, a lot of role-playing systems just try to replicate um, what's going on in the real world with added fantasy elements. I mean, you'll find there's all rules about drowning, about gravity, you know, it's all exactly as you said, rules about how the situations play out that you're trying to do, not so much rules about how the story progresses or what's going to happen next, though there are tabletop games that do have an element of that. Uh, An Mm -hmm. example is Dungeon World, which has some creative elements actually tied into the gameplay. So what is, what to you is so special about the, the Dungeons and Dragons system and setting? Um, I think it's like, it's like having an old friend. Um, (laughs) Some people really like uh, some of the old characters, you know, like, uh, Loth the Spider Queen, for example, is this dark, uh, yeah, is this dark god of the Drow, and um, she's been around since Second Edition. She's a classic bad guy. There's also Groomsh, the orc, orc king, who's or orc god, who's been around for a very long time. Paylor, the god of righteousness in the sun, who's been along a, a long time. Elamester, you know, all these different characters that are kind of D and D standard that have been around since D and D was created, and people are like wow, you know, this character's been there the whole time. You know, there's all these things that they upgrade as you're playing D&D. You know, Wizards of the Coast comes out with 
new versions of classic role-playing um, modules and stories um, that that they want to keep keep creating, that they want to keep, I guess, making money off of, that they want to keep people interested in. And the, the beautiful thing, I think, about role-playing games like this, as opposed to, say, video games, is that, you know, you can be playing a video game, especially like, you know, I'll be playing a video game and, um, you know, my wife will be sitting there watching me be like, shoot that guy. And I'm like, I can't shoot that guy. Like, it just, I can't do that. That The game won't let me do it. Look, here, I tried. Whereas in a role-playing game, like those, those you know, gods and monsters you reference that have been these ongoing things and have their names referenced in spells, you know, it, as the DM, you could be like, cool, that's our villain. We're going to go murder a god. That's our campaign. We can do that if we want. Um, whereas, you know, it doesn't have those restrictions that a video game would. You can really be as creative and as adventurous as you, as you want to be. And it even goes down to some um, even non-violent gameplay elements where it's like, oh, you know, Gandalf is so cool, I want to grab a drink with him. Now you can. Yeah, I mean, the, the role play aspect, I mean, it's hard for some people to understand. I, I have a group that I've been working with, you know, I'm playing with for a little about maybe a year and a half or so. And, you know, they really, they really took to it very quickly without, without having any experience in this sort of thing. I think being a little bit hesitant at first. And, but... Still, there's that little thing of like trying to be like, okay, you're not playing Skyrim. You can't just rob everyone and like take all their <laughs> stuff and like murder right. them. It's a little bit tough to get past that, I think, when you're used to it. But I'm also like, I always say the example of, you know, you can do, you can try to do anything. That's what I think. That's the classic right. D&D thing. You can try. And that's why it is so much for me, much more, not more fun, but it's so much more complex and like rewarding than video games because you know, I always remember thinking back playing Resident Evil and like burning down the hallway in the old mansion and seeing the suit of armor and a sword and being like, boy, that sure seems useful. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wish <laughs> I could just grab that. Yeah. And D&D, you can. Um, so that's, I think that's what a lot of the big appeal for me is. I think for, I think what's interesting about the culture of like Dungeons and Dragons, like the history of it is a lot of fun. And especially some of like, even like the political things of like the kind of people who played it back in the day and like the religious and right wing back backlash against it and uh just that it does have um so much experience and history i think is what keeps people coming back to it or, or even just i oftentimes include pathfinder and when I'm talking about dungeon and dragons because you know they changed some names because wizards of the coast copyrighted some things but right. you know they still they still like do their best to be like oh yeah that's who that is okay fine uh but yeah so why don't we take a break talk about some news and when we come back uh roger you can tell us about uh how you like to DM, you know, and some of your uh, some of your favorite uh, role playing experiences. Hey, sounds good. So there's a lot of uh, <laughs> news coming out of Hollywood on some some major film properties that doesn't look great for those major film properties. Uh, the big one, this just was announced. Uh, announced, maybe a rumor, maybe. Uh, it's also maybe not necessarily a thing the studio is going to confirm right away, but uh, the Hollywood Reporter is reporting that um, Colin Trevorrow, who's directing Star Wars Episode Nine, recently did uh, Jurassic World and then some other movie in between that did not do well. Um, his script for that movie has apparently been thrown out and they are bringing in new writers to redevelop the script. Um, I think from the same treatment, so Ryan Johnson, who's directing The Last Jedi... Uh, he wrote the treatment for episode nine, kind of the plot outline, and that's what they're going with. But apparently they are uh, throwing his out. He's still attached to direct, but 
Ooh, let's see. There were a lot of petitions to get him taken off of this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I mean, I just watched Jurassic World for the first time eh, maybe six months ago, and that's not a great movie. <laughs> uh, so, and I don't think he, I was like, because like when they, when they said the three directors, it's like, all right, we got J.J. Abrams. All right, cool. He's he's good director. All right, R- Ryan Johnson. All right, that's awesome. He's great. He made Looper. I love that movie. And then it's like, and Colin Trevor, it's like, you're going to have that guy close out your trilogy? Ugh. You mean you mean the guy who broke Fantastic Four? <laughs> Wait, is that who yep. made? Oh God, yeah. I didn't realize that. <laughs> that was that was I think um, that was when the the um, backlash really started. I think to get him uh, taken off of Star Wars was people were like, oh, this is awful. Oof, that doesn't sound good. Hopefully, I mean maybe, and I can't help but think maybe some of the impetus to rewrite is because. They probably have to rewrite some things around Carrie Fisher's character too. Fair. You know, there there could be some some stuff there. Uh, and it's still, I mean, we're still very far away. They haven't even. I mean, they're still working on script. So, and the report I read was quick to point out that you know, adding new writers, going through rewrites at this stage in the production is not at all unusual. But there is something a little bit. You got to feel like this is kind of a slap in the face to your director. You know, to kind of be like, hey, we know you wrote the script, uh, but uh, no. Yikes. Yeah, it's it's like, here, Roger, you can DM this campaign, but you can't prep it. It's like, oh, I don't know about yeah, that. Yeah, that would really bother me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, even as a, a movie script guy, you put you put so much work into it, really, in, in every angle. And then for somebody to just come in and be like, uh, nope. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, I mean, between this and the Han Solo spinoff, it really seems like Disney is keeping the reins very tight on these Star Wars movies, which truthfully for Star Wars uh, at this stage in, you know, that franchise's life, I do not mind having a firm hand on the wheel. So more power to them. Yeah, still, there's a lot of sorry. There's there's still a lot of, um, I guess, even backlash from them just taking all the like open universe stuff and just trashing that anyway. I mean, I know that's kind of old news, but still seems fresh to me. Don't open that wound, Roger. Don't open that wound. <laughs> I was trying. <laughs> uh, along those lines, um, another major movie franchise sounds like eh, this isn't a huge like, oh, my gosh, kind of thing. But uh, the director of The Mummy, which performed phenomenally. No, no, it didn't. Uh, Alex Kurtzman. Um, somebody asked him, like, oh, how's the Dark Universe coming? Like, you going to be you need directing any more movies? And he was like, I don't really know. And, Oh, <laughs> I I believe it's pronounced dark universe. Sorry, I I I know I failed us all. <laughs> you gotta get the inflection right, man. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, so it sounds like the dark universe is is going dark. Yeah, I mean it's it's also oh. not uncommon, you know, in these kind of between the movies for you know key players to kind of hem and haw publicly about if they'll come back. Um, you know, I mean, Daniel Craig does that between every James Bond movie. Um, and that might be just part of you kind of throw that out there. I might not come back. And then maybe, the you know, the um, there's some backlash. There's some, you know, in the press. And then, you know, then you go back to the contract negotiations. They look, see how people upset would be, how upset <laughs> they would be if I said I wasn't coming back. Um, but I mean, I if if I was that guy, I would be like, no, no, I'm never doing anything like this again. I never want to see any of you people again in my life. <laughs> yeah. I'm out of here. I mean, that movie only made 80 million domestically, which is pretty low for a big blockbuster like that. Yeah. And for the start of a brand new dark universe, uh, I just that had to be 
kind of concerned, I think. Although apparently that Brighter Frankenstein movie is up next is still Ugh. full speed ahead. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Starring Angelina Jolie as the Bride of Frankenstein. Role of a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, and so Dark Tower comes out maybe this weekend judging by the volume of commercials i'm seeing i'm assuming it's this weekend yeah but uh so another report was coming out this week um about some of the troubles that have plagued that thing behind the scenes and who oh boy i mean one it's a little bit embarrassing that this is coming out like release week of your movie but it also kind of speaks to the general like atmosphere of like hey this thing's a big pile of crap isn't it we all know it's a big pile of crap um so apparently and evidently this is very unusual so sony MRC, which I think is like Media Rights Capital or something, some production company, and Stephen King all had absolute veto power for the Dark Dark Tower movie and marketing, which means if any one of those three entities saw anything they didn't like at any point, they could shut it down. So normally there's somebody in a movie production who kind of has final say. Usually it's the it's the you know the producers just one set of them but apparently this there were so many cooks in the kitchen um and everybody fighting over everything that might be why that thing looks like such a just a directionless mess um i feel like if everybody has veto power that's how you get like a five minute movie well this is how they got a 95 minute movie apparently because that's the runtime this thing is clocking in at amazing that is short (laughs) but on top of that they're still saying that that the post-movie TV series that will be canon with the movie and the books, I guess, is still in the works. I wonder how long that'll last if this movie performs poorly. I don't know, but... I don't know. I've heard so many things. The original plan, back when they first started planning this, was three movies and two TV show seasons. The TV show season's kind of serving as interstitial between the movies. So you'd see a movie, and then then you'd watch a season of TV and then you'd watch the next movie, which I actually think is kind of a neat concept and actually could work very well with just kind of the pace of the original books. But who oh boy, I don't know. Yeah. I'll be sad to see if this doesn't work out because as I've, you know, showed my hand in previous episodes, I really like the idea of multimedia like franchises that all fit together. You can have books and movies and TV shows all fit and all be, you know, it's all connected. And the idea of that this Dark Tower movie was gonna was canon with the books and took place, I'll put it the air quotes, after the book series, and that this TV show was gonna go even further. Like that was a cool idea to me. And I'm sad that it's being flubbed because then people are gonna be like, Oh, that model doesn't work. And it's like, well, no, it was just done poorly. But yeah. Yes, and also the Dark Tower series should just stay a book forever. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was good as is. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, like a lot of Stephen King things, it works a lot better on paper than it does when you put it up on the screen. Uh, right. So this is something that doesn't even work on paper, but they're putting on the screen. We talked last week about the Spawn movie and how dumb Spawn is, but uh, some more details have come out. Um, and I actually, I remember reading about this pitch in Wizard Magazine, for those of you who remember what Wizard Magazine was, for those of you who remember what a magazine was, I remember reading about this um, after the first Spawn movie came out and kind of didn't do well, was that, oh, you know, Todd McFarlane wants to do another Spawn movie, but he wants to do it like more of like a horror movie where Spawn isn't the main character. It's the detectives, Sam and Twitch, who've been there since issue one. They're these just normal 
detectives, well, normal for the Spawn universe, which means everybody's got a weird sexual hang up and it's all grim dark all the time, but um, who are kind of on the trail of Spawn. So it's going to be a more like a vaguely supernatural detective story with Spawn as kind of maybe the, like if this was a horror movie, Spawn would be the monster. Yeah, I mean, I think any media that tries to tackle something in a three-dimensional way is like a really fascinating concept. And I think it's actually kind of what drags people into the Marvel Universe because you get to have a movie that's like, hey, this is Spider-Man. This is Spider-Man's movie. And then after that, you get to see Spider-Man from a completely different direction. And a lot of these Marvel movies, sometimes you get to see, you know, your favorite heroes as, as enemies are on the other side of the team. And I think drawing in Spawn is sort of this other element that isn't actually the main character, I think is a really good concept. I mean, I don't know if it'll work out, but. I mean, I've wanted to see a superhero movie from the perspective of non-superhero people. Like, I love the idea of how does the real world react to the existence of a superhero? Um, the thing about it is Spawn is so fucking dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> I just, I mean, this, this, this could be interesting with anybody else in the, in the, 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 you know, the, the, the hero, superhero role, you know, a, a Batman movie that's more about the Gotham City Police Department could be interesting. Um, a Superman movie that's about, you know, well, I feel like they kind of tried to do this, <laughs> the world reacting to Superman, but. Zack Snyder doesn't know who Superman is, so it didn't quite work out. <laughs> yeah. But no, I just, I, I think this is a fine idea, but I think the only way you get a Spawn movie right in 2017 is if you make it about how weird and dumb and dated Spawn is. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, that doesn't seem to be the, the path they're taking, so. I don't we'll know, man. Maybe like we're right on the verge of like, you know, like we're talking about 80s nostalgia, super in, like maybe we're right on the verge of like super 90s, grimdark, edgelord, like 90s nostalgia. You know, everyone's going to start wearing like baggy pants again and spikes and. No, I can't. No. <laughs> I actually love to see it because I just don't even know what it'd look like. You know, 80s nostalgia is so great. Everything about it is so wonderful to me. But like 90s nostalgia, I'm like, how are they going to make that awesome? I don't know. I just don't. Right. Because well, like, because like the '80s aesthetic, like some of that, you can look at that and be like, "There's like 70% good design and good ideas here," whereas the '90s aesthetic, there's like one percent good design and good ideas left over. Like and I that was, it could break you. your heart, right? <laughs> oh man! Like <laughs> go back and watch any music video from the '90s. Not a single thing in it. You're like, "Oh, that was actually kind of like." That kind of looks cool, and I like the colors in this. It's like, no, it's just all awful, just bright, garish greens and reds and uh, crushed velvet shirts, and oh, I can't get... Uh. <laughs> well, I, had, I was actually thinking this on the way home, because I saw a, a meme posted about some some metal guy, like some kid who's wearing a Slayer shirt and a denim jacket, and it's just like, you know, I miss the 80s, it's like born in 1996, and it's like... We talked about this before, like why we, why we, someone like Roger Mai's age, who like really weren't really even alive in the eighties, nostalgia, like have so much nostalgia for it and care about it and love it. It's because there's nothing to, there's no fruit in the nineties to cling to, so you have to go to another decade to find it. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, in in what I think is good news, um, Matt Groening, who so far has created two of the greatest uh television shows in history uh the simpsons and futurama has a new show coming out next year on netflix called disenchantment which is a high fantasy animated show um the premise sounds a little thin but 
It's just kind of, so you've got a quote unquote hard drinking princess played by Abby from Broad City, an elf named Elfo, which, all right, good, and a <laughs> demon named Lucy, played by Eric Andre, which, all right, I can get behind that. And it's kind of a fantasy uh, fantasy kingdom that's kind of fallen into disarray. Um, but then again, if you just told me the premise of Futurama was, uh, there's an unfrozen guy and a robot and a cyclops, and they run a delivery company, I'd be like... That sounds pretty thin, Matt. Or The Simpsons, like, hey, it's a family, but they're yellow this time. <laughs> you know, <Beautiful>. like, <laughs> um, so I'm kind of excited about this because, you know, if you think about, like, what Matt Groening did for the family-focused sitcom and what he then did for, like, science fiction, and, because without Futurama, there's no Rick and Morty. No. Um, yeah. I think that's fair. And... I would really like to see what he does for fantasy. And what gets me even more on board for this is the they, they dropped some names from the extended voice cast. So you basically have everybody from Futurama. You've got Billy West and John DiMaggio and uh, Maurice LaMarche, who was also uh, the brain on Pinky and the Brain. Um, but you also have Noel Fielding, Rich Fulcher, and Matt Berry, who, if you're like me, and you like everything that's British, and you like incredibly absurd comedy, um, Noel Fielding was from The Mighty Boosh, and Matt Berry and Rich Fulcher. Um, generally, Matt Berry is the guy you call when you need a really pompous-sounding, boomy British voice. Um, <laughs> and Rich Fulcher is the guy when you need a kind of uh, fat, weirdly creepy American but they made a show that you can sometimes catch on Netflix called Snuffbox, which is the weirdest, greatest thing that ever happened on television. And um, Matt Berry also, I mean, you've seen him all over the place. If you watch Garth Marenghi's Dark Place um, or um, Look Around You, these things that sometimes pop up on Adult Swim, uh, he's fantastic. I'm really looking forward to this. It sounds good to me. I mean, I hope that since it's on Netflix, it'll be a little bit more like edgy you know like then the simpsons or futurama can be on network on cable tv network tv um doesn't have to be quite as edgy as rick and morty necessarily but just you have the freedom <laughs> to do what you want um doesn't have to go quite that dark and absurd and grotesque sometimes but it sounds really cool i i'm excited that he's breaking out of you know making things on fox or i guess comedy central <laughs> i think well, i mean if you look at the other if you look at a lot of simpsons episodes you look at futurama episodes you can tell that he's really actually had some interest in it he's really wanted to take a stab at that high fantasy environment it's a creative thing that he wants to pursue yeah and i think that somebody with matt Groening's money you know he's not gonna do anything unless he wants to do that thing right right like he's you know unless he really feels like there's something there for him and he's interested in it like He's richer than God at this point. So for oh, him yeah. to just, you know, get up out of bed and decide to actually go to work, like he's clearly doing it for personal stakes rather than financial. So, um, yeah, and I think he ha he certainly has a, has a taste for it. I mean, I'm pretty sure Gary Gygax was on an episode of The Simpsons <laughs> for a brief cameo. I believe it too. Yeah, I think he was. Uh, I guess the only other bit of news we have is that, um, you know, because apparently uh, this this you know this year last year it's all about the Ian McShane train. He got is being cast as. You want to take this one, Greg? Yeah, go for it. Professor Bruttenholm. It's pronounced Broom. Br Britain. <laughs> yeah. What? No, it's yeah, it's, Broom. It's broom. That's the way it is in the uh, in the comics. Uh, There's a lot of missing continents in that pronunciation. Uh, he's British. Um, yeah, this is really interesting because that character is played by. 
John Hurt in the original series, who was kind of a little pitch perfect casting based on the way the character was kind of portrayed in the comics as kind of a frail, wise, you know, paternal figure. So putting Ian McShane in this role is actually very interesting. I'm I'm almost skeptical if this is some kind of stunt where they say they're casting him as one person, but he really turns out to be somebody else. Because, I mean, if you're going to have a Hellboy movie, you might have to have Satan come on screen. And if you're going to cast somebody to play Satan, it might as well be Ian McShane. Mm -hmm. But I'm also, I'm, 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 I'm interested in new interpretations on these characters. Uh, the original, the comics are perfect as they are. I don't necessarily think we need to mirror them. Let's, you know, let's see where they go. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard when you're trying to readapt something that's been made so recently and you have to, especially for maybe not so much like main characters, because you kind of expect them to be somewhat similar. But some of the side characters, it gets hard because especially if it was casted well the first time, you, you don't just want to take another stab at doing the exact same style thing. It's like it's kind of like if you're like they're going to remake Lord of the Rings again, which I'm not saying is probably off the table anytime soon. Although they did say that the the rights for Similarian have been finalized. <sighs> <laughs> good good well it, that's fine they can sell the rights but they'll never make the movie because as i've said before that would require someone reading the book which has never happened in the history of mankind no one's ever read the full thing it's never happened it's impossible uh, but, but yeah you know so maybe like you know trying to imagine them recasting gandalf is hard and you might just need to go a completely different direction instead of another old british guy you know what i mean i mean like just like just mix it up completely but all some right, actors we'll they just so, they just get insulted by playing the same role. They're like, I don't, you know, I want to take it in a completely different direction, but for the audience, that's really disjointing. Yeah. So I, I'm going to say it right here, right now, when we reboot Lord of the Rings, I want to see Louise Guzman as uh, Gandalf. <laughs> yes, perfect, perfect casting. <laughs> so Greg, just turn this back on you for a second. <laughs> You've uh you've played a little bit of Dungeons and Dragons, right? Is your campaign with me the only experience you've had playing? Playing Dungeons and Dragons, yes. Or, or a tabletop RPG in general. Tabletop RPG, no. What have you played? Well, um, you know, look, we were all in high school once, and some of us were in high school in the nineties. Some of us weren't. I'm and so excited. <laughs> some of us who were in high school in the nineties, and uh wanted to play a role-playing game with their friends and maybe they were also reading a lot of Anne Rice at the time. Um, I, I played Vampire. I played Vampire the Masquerade. What do you want from me? Hey, man, it's fine. Yeah, All right, that's okay. not as embarrassing as I thought it was No, 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 no. <laughs> I was really hoping you are going to say like you played the Stay by the Bell RPG system or something like that. But... <laughs> I mean, that'd be amazing. I should make that system tonight. Sp speaking speaking of which, I should I should mention I was just listening to uh, weirdly enough this week's cracked podcast was all about Dungeons and Dragons, and they were talking to uh, the guys who recently published a Wet Hot American Summer RPG. Perfect. What? With the, with, That's awesome. With, with the full blessing of the uh, of the of the cast and crew. So weird. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So Roger, as a very experienced dungeon master. Tell us a little about your style, you know, what you strive for in a game and what kind of experience you want your players to have. I, I guess it's really hard to say because sometimes, I should say a lot of times as a DM, you you end up being uh, selfishly selfless where you're kind of trying to push a lot of agendas, at least for me personally. I try and, you know, I, I want to do certain things, but I also want the players to have fun. Uh, for beginning players or, or I would say a player group that's fairly neutral, you know, I don't know those guys a lot or I haven't played a lot of campaigns. I try and align the motives of the character with the motives of the player. 
Um, there's a really cool series uh, on YouTube. If you ever heard of Ego Raptor, he's like a Flash artist, that sort of thing. He has a series called Sequelitis where he talks about video games and video game sequels. And one of the bits he does is on Mega Man X. And he talks about how in Mega Man X, as the, the player, you want to gain more power. You want to be as strong as Zero, who is a character that's very powerful at the beginning of the game. But also, Mega Man wants to be that powerful too as, as a result of the game's storyline. So usually in the campaign, I you know the player obviously wants to gain more power. They want to get more gold. They want to get to the highest level. They want to have fun playing the game and just you know get things like you would in any RPG nowadays. But also the character may want to get more powerful to say save someone or impress his master or defeat the evil empire or, or whatever's at stake. So I think at the end of the day, I'm really just trying to line everything up. How would you say that? One thing I always find. And partly it's just because I'm a novice and don't have all the game knowledge still. But as a DM, I struggle with, uh, you know, walking that line between being in some ways the group's opponent, but in also in other ways the group's, you know, sponsor, right? Like struggling between making it challenging and like feel like it has stakes and motivations and like is, is realistic, but also making it fun. How do you, how do you balance that? Sometimes you don't. Um, <laughs> sometimes you're trying to be a real dude, and I think that's the best part of D&D, uh, is just trying to make it as real as possible, being really immersed in the character. And sometimes people, well, actually almost all the time, people are very illogical. They have certain things that they're trying to accomplish. Sometimes you're trying to do the great quest where you save the entire world from the dark wizard, but all you can think about is how Jeff and the party slept with Sarah, who you were trying to get with, and that creates an interesting party tension. Gotcha. That makes sense. That explains some things. Just <laughs> uh, so, but I guess so. You know, we're talking about you as a DM, but you as a player. Who's your Who's the favorite character you ever played? Um, a lot of times I get. Uh, you know how we talked about hey, which which archetypes are easy? You know, what are your default archetypes? You know, you're trying to play characters that are 2D that are home base. For me, home base is really like the dwarf fighter. I just like oh, I want to drink. I want to get all the gems. I don't want to beat up the big things. I don't always want to worry about fussy magic and things. Um, I actually played with a guy named Colby a long time ago, and he made this. He let me play this character who was that archetype to the max. So I basically became uh, this god of war, and I just drank all the time, and I just fought everyone. And his name was Margold, and he's this ridiculous dwarf. And eventually, it became cross-genre, too. So <laughs> I was high fantasy. Then I got into the modern age where I was using guns. Then I went into space, and it was just this crazy campaign that arced over 10 years, and it was just awesome. And that's 10 real human years, not 10 in Real years. human years, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's... I know that character. So how, <laughs> just, just as out of curiosity, I mean, so how does a DM kind of scale the, scale that adventure over 10 years, right? Because so a big part of all these games is you're, you're leveling up your character, you're getting more powerful, you're, and you're encountering increasingly difficult threats. And like, how do you get to that? How do you deal with, you know, what I've called in other contexts, like Dragon Ball syndrome, where it's just you get to the point where everything's just so ridiculously overpowered. It's almost comical. Like how as a DM, do you kind of scale things for those really long campaigns? Uh, at the end of the day, D and D uh, is like any good book where any idea is really symbolized, uh, sorry, symbolized by some sort of either artifact or character or something like that. You know, when you're fighting, say Sauron, you're really fighting tyranny 
or you know, whenever Lord of the Rings happened, it's it's really just a metaphor for World War II. It's the same thing. Whenever you become uh, a god or, or too powerful for the goblins or the orcs or the run-of-the-mill bad guys, you might fight be fighting gods or you might be fighting these crazy things. But really, you're just fighting concepts and ideas. And I think as you level up and become stronger, the campaign just becomes more abstract. Suddenly, you know, things aren't about slaying the orc captain. They're more about how politically am I going to get this guy to do what I want him to do or something of the sort. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I'll give a, a brief anecdote here of power scale and craziness when our lower level characters were thrown into the middle of a god war where one one player's turn, one player's character's turn took 45 minutes. <laughs> one turn, six seconds in D&D terms hmm. uh, because he was a, I guess he was a god, right? Uh, actually, no, he was just a run-of-the-mill wizard, just a really powerful wizard. You know, it was like time stop, time stop, time stop, time revert, you know, whatever, and just cast a million spells. Uh, and that whole gods battle in the middle of a god war was about 10 hours, I think. <laughs> yeah, it took forever. And it's such a gameplay bloat sometimes when you get in these really epic campaigns, which is why you try and make it more about ideas so you kind of can ignore some of that bloat. Because sometimes it's just, you know, yeah, you're gods. If you're a little bit more powerful than them, I guess you beat them. You know, at the end of the day, sometimes it's just like it's about your weaknesses and strengths because you're kind of set in a certain role. You know, in the beginning, you can be like, at least in a lot of tabletop, you can be like, ah, you know what? I'm going to be a fighter and I'll do a little bit of magic too. But then later you get hyper-specialized usually. You know, I'm definitely a wizard and I don't do jack other else. Do you think there's like a inverse relationship between like, do you need to like put way more into the story the higher level you get as like a DM and as a player? Is there an expectation there? Absolutely. Um, the the actual player group that you're referring to that are all gods i really haven't played with them for some time but whenever i do make a campaign it takes me usually months of preparing and really just thinking like is this a good story is this worth you know bringing these characters back out of the mythos and the mud to have them do this whatever it is so it's got to be suitably epic sometimes gotcha so Along those lines, what's something, what, what are you like currently working on? Like in general, I mean, you don't speak to anything specific. I want you to give me spoilers or anything, but like what's, what's got your interest right now? What are you working on? Um, I actually, uh, for damning for so long, uh, I really had a real fear and still do of being published. Um, I just, I ended up writing so many things shorthand that I needed to kind of learn to write so other people can read it. <laughs> so what I'm doing now is I'm basically polishing off my ability to make a pre-made. So this current pre-made I'm working on is my first foray into that world. And spoilers, I guess. It's kind of based on, if you've ever seen Prestige, that uh, the magician type movie, it's kind of based on the theming of that movie. Hmm. Well, I'm really glad you're doing that, Roger, because I think you're super talented when it comes to that kind of stuff. And I know that you have, you know, what file cabinets full of worlds and notes and characters and maps and things to pull from, I think that you could definitely do some really cool stuff. Yeah, literally filing cabinets. <laughs> <laughs> I have filing cabinets full of documentation for cars I no longer own. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Same. Make a campaign uh, out of that. <laughs> <laughs> What's something around like tabletop RPGs that you that you hate, that you don't like? A cultural thing or something that a stereotype or I don't know, any, anything along those lines? Um, I suppose whenever you play D&D, it's a very social game. And it's like in real life, sometimes people just aren't on the same page. So you can play a campaign that's silly, that's fun, that doesn't involve 
any extra thought or any extra anything. You're just kind of playing to have fun. But a lot of times you play a campaign, it's serious. People play for what they call the immersion or being in the campaign or being in the character. And I think sometimes when you come to the table, some people don't want to play a part in that immersion. They're not on the same page. So just people who are like something else entirely. You know, you're saying, I want to be this guy who's trying to do this epic journey. And then you talk to Jeff and Jeff's like, I want to be Dick Masturbator who (laughs) summons bats you're like come on dude i don't why okay whatever yeah that's one thing that's tough is getting all on the same page i think especially when some people are i mean god i don't know if i should tell the story roger but oh are you going to really oh, i won't <laughs> we got invited roger and i got invited to a play group once for some i don't know i even know if we were like friends of friends kind of thing and we went there and it was one of the most awkward experiences of our lives because these guys were like these guys are what people think of when you think about people who play D spitting image really like it was i mean i'm not i don't want to say the things i usually say because they're not politically correct but just like, i mean the one guy had like a like one of those like keychains like a spider-man keychain you know like ones that are like kind of like clear plastic that have like an image inside of it with like a name printed you get it like you know, like when you go to like Disney World or something, he was yeah. wearing it as a necklace, Ooh. but it said Inferno. And he said, asked to call him like, was it Dr. Inferno? This is not as his character, who was a poo flinging monkey person. And we were just like, oh, God. And like, you're there and you're stuck there. And what do you do? Just it was. terrible. Yeah, we just had to ride it out for as long as we could. It's like, what do you do? I guess I guess we're playing this game, Inferno. You know, it's... so so I was worried that when you guys started telling this story, and you were kind of getting to the reveal of like, oh, this awful situation we walked into. I was like, oh, this is a sex thing, right? Right. They totally misread. <laughs> they totally misread the situation. And this is like a key party or something. But no, what you described sounds worse. It was the opposite of that. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty bad. I mean, at least if you go to a sex party back, so you could just be like, oh, ha- sorry. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this is the more it's like it's like an easy app. Be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm not. You know, this isn't how I roll. I'm not a swinger. Blah blah. blah. You you have an easy exit out. This. What do you say? I'm sorry. You're all really awkward. I'm gonna leave. Like, <laughs> I want to play D and D, just not with you creeps. <laughs> oh right. man, brutal. <laughs> uh, so, and I remember he, they they framed it as a heavy metal themed dungeon. D and D session, which like yeah. I thought was cool. Art, we'll listen to some tunes. I'll we have some imagery and stuff from that. No, no, no. We were a heavy metal band in our campaign. Oh God, it was yeah, so. Bad. I, I, that. <laughs> I mean, come on. I don't look, think look. any heavy metal was actually played during the session either, no, which no, was nuts. Wasn't. Aren't isn't aren't all Dungeons and Dragons campaigns kind of heavy metal? <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons campaigns. Yeah, yeah. Come no, on. the good ones anyway. <laughs> yeah. We've all seen enough Dio album covers to know. <laughs> Uh, right. So, but you know, sadly, as people get older and move away and have jobs and things, and, uh, as we're doing tonight, recording over distance, uh, there's been a shift in the way we can play or we have to play to a more technologically based setup. Uh, so there's been some strides to kind of connect people more for, to allow for these tabletop RPG systems to continue. Uh, a site like Roll20 is an online ho- hosting platform, you know, talking about having the new Dungeons and Dragons app that's gotten beginning a lot of press to try and eliminate some of the books and just even just having the internet in general has just saved so much time and money and just being able to expand this. So Roger, what do you think is like gained or lost with that, with a lot of these changes around, you know, kind of like the structural support of the games? I think it's really pretty simple. I actually, a lot of people feel very purist about it. I actually subscribe to one of those online things at roll 20 usually. Um, 
And it's actually very efficient. Sometimes it's just nice to eliminate all of the extra stuff whenever you're role-playing. You know, the actual rolling of the dice, the actual, you know, and still have the randomness there and still have all the rules in place, but you can just click and it allows you to get through some of the meat of the gameplay very quickly. But I think what you lose is a lot of people expect is some emotional intimacy. And, and a lot of times you can't, you can't tell what people are doing. Um, you know, we, we might be playing D&D and we might be hanging out and all that stuff, but you might be like checking Facebook or something like that. And when you're at the table, it really prevents that. You you are in the game whether you like it or not. And when you're <laughs> online, it frees you up to kind of do whatever you want. You're just not as into the game. You're not as immersed like I talked before. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's you know, it's one of those things where I have nothing against the technology. I'm not a purist. It's what we have to do nowadays. But there is something special still about sitting around the table, I think, that isn't wholly there in the online setting. Yeah, something missing. Even just like the ease of just talking, you know, five people in a voice chat, it's really easy to just talk over each other and not know what's going on. And like you said, get distracted. So, yeah. The cues are all different. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I just wanted to just talk about me for a second. (laughs) Oh, share, please. Just that I just want to say that my favorite Dungeons & Dragons experience was a campaign that Roger ran for me and my friend Keith in college. It was a duo, so not your typical, you know, four-person party. It was just us two, uh, for the most part. Um, and it was, uh, my character was Erevis Stonemite, and his was Riven Cloakhand. Those are some uh, Dungeons & Dragons-ass names. I know. <laughs> I, I thought they were great, actually. I mean, the, the, the first names come from another book series of Keith, because I'm bad at picking names. Like, I'm like, you've seen the community episode of, or the Dungeons & Dragons episode community where Abed's characters are named like Kyle and things like that. Like, I'm not good at <laughs> yeah, yeah. names. <laughs> uh, that's me. But um, it's like, yeah, his name's uh, uh, Joe. Yeah, Joe. And then just like throw some weird fantasy thing at the end of it. But, um, and we played for what? Four years, maybe? Years. Three years. I even yeah. tried to quit on you guys. And you were like, nah, nope. you're, you're still playing. I'm like, okay, dude. <laughs> Sometimes you gotta, you got the players have to tell the DM we're not done here yet. We're not done yet. <laughs> But I just wanted, that was such a fun time of my life and really introduced me to the game. And I just loved every second of it. And we played other campaigns, you know, in between all that time. It's not like you typically pay one campaign, you know, solely. It's not a monogamous relationship typically. But, uh, and I'm also really sad that I didn't get to continue Greg's campaign. What was your character's name? <laughs> yes. The, uh, the orc, the orc monk who, who's, uh, with, with incredibly low intelligence, but, um, super lawful good. He was a monk with low intelligence, but, um, I mean, we all, we really only got through one session before life got in the way, but, um, literally every goblin I punched died instantly. It was all, all I did was punch and they all died instantly. It was a fantastic experience. And then right at the end, I got some gauntlets or, or wristbands or something that made my punches electrified and never really got to, never really got to use them. Maybe we'll revive that character someday. <laughs> I was going to say, Coons, that, that is something that reminds me. Um, it, D&D is about, you know, it's a lot about friendship in some ways. And, you know, when you play D&D with people that you don't know, sometimes you ignite, you know, new friendships, I guess you could say. But usually the bond when you're playing the game, the game's just so much richer when you're playing with people you actually, like, genuinely like. I know that's kind of sometimes you don't always get that luxury whenever you're playing D&D, but it, it's just a great way to really um, intellectually explore everything, everything that your friends have to offer, I guess. 
I know. I and, yeah, I know that sounds point. really weird, but it, that's just the way it is. Sometimes you don't get to have those deep conversations. Sometimes you don't get to know a lot about something, but a lot of things about a person really come out at the table, even though you're just talking in funny voices and slashing fake goblins and things like that. Uh, you know, and, 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 uh, in our culture, there's not a lot of opportunities for men to kind of get to know each other on a more, uh, emotional level. Uh, it's not something that our culture is really built to enable or encourage. And this might be one of those things that, you know, enables that. And uh, uh, that's a good thing. I think it's just a much socially richer way of having a beer. At the end of the day, you're just like, <laughs> hey, we're here to hang out and that's it. Yeah, well, I mean, think- and you make so many memories because you, you know, think about how many times we've spent more time at the table talking about, remember that time that you did that and he did that and we did this. And, you know, it was probably some more time that than playing sometimes, but it just, there's, you know, inside jokes, all those kind of things. There's, there's so much, so much to pull from where sometimes people feel like, oh, well, if we can't talk about football, like, what are we going to talk about? You know, and that's not, I never felt that way, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some straw man male in my head talks that way, I guess. Well, so. Yeah. But I guess, so I guess, Roger, um, is there any, you know, before we get to some, I, I wanted to ask you to give some advice for people, maybe looking to DM, looking to start playing Dungeons and Dragons or role play or tabletop games, and maybe some recommendations. But before that, is there anything else you wanted to, you know, get off your chest? You're on a soapbox. It's all you. Um, yeah, I, the biggest thing about D&D that I really enjoy is when the experiences become um, real. And I know that's what a lot of people actually fear about D&D, but it's the thing that I actually love the most. You know, you have this character that's in this rich, persistent world. And, you know, that world is, is three-dimensional, like I was talking about earlier. And suddenly everybody knows that guy like he's real. You know, they'll say, oh, that Magnus guy, he's a real asshole. But Magnus doesn't exist. He's never, he never was a person in any respect in the real world, but everybody seems to know him. His legacy precedes him. When you see him, you're like, I already know about this fucking asshole. You know, I don't want to deal with him. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the best way, you can hear about the way we talk about it when someone like, you know, you're my friend Pete. He plays a character named Radagast, not to be confused with the wizard in Lord of the Rings. He is very much unlike that wizard. (laughs) Um, yes, completely. He's the god of punches, essentially. <laughs> um, but he says, when he talks about that character, he says, oh yeah, well, Radagast would do this, or he thinks this. Not Pete thinks that, or I yes. think that. It's that character thinks that. Even though it is reflective of you, I always liked, I always thought that distinction was something that stood out to me about this sort of thing. You never say that about a video game character you played. Exactly, yeah. So, Roger, uh, what would be your advice for people thinking about hopping into this crazy Dungeons and Dragons or tabletop thing? Um, Yeah, it's the same advice as anything. Um, Learning a new skill or anything like that. Just jump in, get your feet wet. Um, Don't be afraid to just do whatever you want to do. You know, even if you just, you have to be the storyteller. That's why they have the books. That's why they have all that stuff. And a lot of that medium is actually online. You can actually access it for free. There's a lot of free tabletop role-playing stuff that's online that you don't have to pay for at all. And it's it's a lot of fun, even just to try out for an evening. You know, instead of say playing Super Smash Brothers, you can just be like, "Hey guys, let's get together and try some D and D 5.0 or try some Call of Cthulhu or something like that." Um, and if I had to suggest a tabletop game to folks that are completely uninitiated in D and D, don't know anything about it, I'm I'm actually going to say Dungeon World. Me personally, I don't always like Dungeon World. It's kind of it's a little bit simplified, but it is just great for people who aren't rules heavy who don't know how to play who just want to get into the meat of the role-playing experience awesome 
Greg, you have recommendations? Yeah. So I think, you know, my, my experience with tabletop RPGs is, is regrettably limited, but I will say that if this is something that you're interested in, and I think one of the best ways to kind of get a feeling for what these games can really be, um, and, you know, certainly a thing that makes me, you know, whenever I'm listening to them, like want to get involved in some, in some role-playing games, there are some really great, uh, podcasts out there that are essentially, um, you're listening in on a D and D game. And the first one I would recommend is the adventure zone by the McElroy brothers who do my brother and my brother and me, the funniest podcast in the world. Um, but it's them and their dad playing a D and D campaign. They've been doing it for years. It's really good. It's a really fun listen. Uh, it's a great blend of funny, but also just um, some really good world building and storytelling. And also, um, whether or not you find the Harmontown podcast enjoyable, when they play D&D, it's fantastic. That it's so much so that they've animated it and turned it into a TV show. But um, actually listening to some early episodes of that, um, because Dan and... Uh, he really likes to push the boundaries of what's possible within the storytelling. And Spencer, the DM, is does such an excellent job of rolling with it and keeping things controlled and interesting and letting letting the players really just go wild and do fun stuff. And um, uh, he guides it and, and keeps it on the story. Uh, so it, it, it's, 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 it's inspiring because it also gives you a sense of like – if you're not too keen on the idea of going in and like pretending to be Gandalf, um, it kind of might break down your assumptions a little bit of what a D and D game can look like and what the characters can look like and what the kind of things you can get up to within the world kind of look like. So, um, yeah, I'm, and I'm sure somebody has, has edited out the Dungeons and Dragons sections and put them up on BitTorrent somewhere. So, uh, yeah, the Harmon Quest or Harmon Town, uh, D and D stuff and the Adventure Zone. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the first Harmon Quest uh, episode, which is on CISO, that is that NBC's secondary whatever pay for channel. I don't know. Um, but I think the first episode is on YouTube. Uh, and it's really funny. It's animated and they got cool special guests, different actors like Aubrey Plaza has been on it and like, you know, all kinds of funny stuff. So I, I definitely also recommend that. Um, for me, I I really, you know, I've played a couple now, um, some that are very rule intensive. I always recommend Pathfinder, even though it's intense and there's a lot of rules to it. Um, you don't have to, there's a lot of rules that are kind of like optional. Like you don't have to delve into the, if the dungeon master knows it's a new group and you're a new person, you can kind of just keep it simple to start. Uh, but if you're looking for something a little less rule heavy, I really liked playing call of Cthulhu. If you like that mythos, if you like that setting, I really enjoyed that campaign. It's got enough rules to kind of get your feet a little more wet than maybe something like dungeon world. But if you light some candles, put on some <laughs> creative music, you know, don't let your character shoot on fire. I've done that a couple times. <laughs> Um, yeah, definitely. With multiple characters. With multiple characters. <laughs> I'm just like notorious for it. It was like, put the candles away from me. I'm going to let my character see it on fire. Oh. I still have that one that has the big burn mark out of it. Cause it looks really cool. Uh, but Actually, yeah, so. um, Colby still has the character that uh, some some bad guy when I was younger, I was like, he killed you so bad, you have to rip up your character sheet. <laughs> and he still has the pieces of his character sheet. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and I'll also recommend... Uh, I mean, I mentioned earlier, but the, the community Dungeons and Dragon episodes, because, well, being made by Dan Harmon, you know that he loves the medium and it's it's playful and it's picking fun a little couple of things. But it's like, you know, lovingly playful, like it's someone who really enjoys playing the game, you know, they're talking about, but it can show you some of the fun of what Dungeons and Dragons can be, if a little in a somewhat absurd manner. 
but I just really, I just rewatched episode the other day, and it's just, it's a perfect representation of the fun and how, and especially for a, a group of people who don't know what they're doing and how quick they are, they are to get into it, I think is like pretty universal. Good slice out of the pie. Mm-hmm. Well, I think because now Andrew and I are going to talk about Game of Thrones, and I'm pretty oh, sure okay. I've been told you don't listen, you don't watch Game of Thrones. Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much it for me. I guess I'll reward you guys 535 experience for overcoming the encounter. <laughs> How, what does that what does that get me? What does that unlock on my skill tree? All right, well <laughs> we got to look at the books here. Well, thank you so well, much Roger. for your time. Uh, this has Thanks been, I know you and Andrew are, are good friends and have been, have been doing this sort of thing for, for a very long time, but, uh, this has been very, very informative and, uh, uh, for me and makes me want to get into, <laughs> to find a play group. Uh, <laughs> so bad, so bad. Well, maybe we can work something out. We'll have to talk. Maybe we can. Um, but I also just want to, I'm sure that Roger, if anybody's listening and wants to reach out to Roger Tier for advice or to start a play group or whatever, I'm sure he'd be more than willing to talk you through it or help you out or whatever. Am I right, Roger? Oh, yeah. I'm very open. I'll help anybody. I right. might even you have to let it, <laughs> And you have to let us know when your uh, your pre-made's done so we can spread it to the world. Yeah, I think for, I'm just going to give it out for free. So Yeah, the first one, probably not a bad idea. Yeah. Start one of those, what do they call them, those Patreons or something, you know, how people just give you, give you money for doing stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think that's how they work. They yeah. just You just say, hey, I need money, and they just give it out. Oh, wait, it's a Kickstarter out. movie? I don't know. Yeah, one of those. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Roger. Yeah. We appreciate having you on. This has been great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Game of Thrones Season 6, Episode 3. The Queen's Justice. But which queen? Ugh, who cares? <laughs> we know the queen. <laughs> uh, justice is a loose word, I'd say. Uh, well, what'd you think? Uh, I think it was the best episode of this season so far, but um, not one of the best episodes of the show. Let's say that. I would agree with that. Um, I, I mean, I don't even know where to begin. I, I just, why does everybody seem to like Euron? I don't know. I I mean, I've been asking this question a lot and I keep getting based people about it. And it's like, why do you like him? Like, especially people who have read books. I'm like, he's such a shade of like crazy epic pirate man that we want. And it's just like, he's just a creep. He's not Ramsey. He's just like, a creep. No, Like he's... Uh, I mean, I, I, I will say I'm happy to see a villain in the show that isn't just a like total sadistic psychopath. Like he seems to be, whereas like Joffrey and Ramsey, you know, they were driven by like, they just like to hurt things. Whereas he seems to be more like, I don't care if I hurt things to get what I want. I mean, that's, that's a little bit of a nice change, but just this guy is just, he's just boring. Like, yeah, I mean, like, more like, to use D&D terms, like, more neutral evil than chaotic evil, maybe. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I I would like to see more of the crazy wizard pirate who's, like, thinks he might be possessed by the drowned god and a little bit of a zealot, but a little bit also of just a crazy person. And Yeah, and, like, shrewd and cunning and, like, I don't know, he just he just is, a for me, a completely different character. Yeah, it, and maybe it's just because he's the first character on the show that has some swagger, and that's not really something we've really seen. I mean, Torment had it a little bit, and I think that's what drew people to Torment. whereas everybody else in the show is so buttoned up and proper, like, he's kind of a breath of fresh air in that regard, but uh, he's just it's just gross it's not like he's not interesting he's not uh he doesn't appear to have interesting motivations uh i'm just not into him um speaking of things i wasn't into uh i thought casterly rock was a huge letdown i mean this this we have been talking this is 
this is like one of the only major locations that we have never seen on the show. Um, it, and, and there was so much talk in an earlier season about how Tyrion was going to inherit the rock and Tywin wouldn't give it to him. And it was this big thing. And it had this, this was this place that had such an emotional weight for Tyrion. And it, it's the seat of all the Lannister wealth, you know, and, and it's just like a white castle on top of a hill. Yeah, I was pretty bummed by that. And like, and just the whole handling of it. And this is kind of my critique of the whole episode, which is like, I felt like I was kind of watching a narration of an episode, not really an episode. <laughs> like, not, I mean, the stuff with Castle Rock, the stuff in like the middle of the of Westeros kind of, that's what I mean. Like the stuff with Castle Rock and stuff with Highgar. I feel like I was just watching a montage of like, on last season, like this is what <laughs> happened. Or like, I just felt like I wasn't really watching a show. I was watching, I was being told what was happening and I didn't really care for that. And I know it's because shit's expensive, but like, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't mind that we don't get a, a big battle sequence every time. I mean, that was they set that up in the first show and they did a good job with it. But the way that they glossed over the battle between the Lannister and the Tyrell army in this really kind of pissed me off because and it's not because I just wanted to see a battle, but because basically Jamie rolls up to Elena's chamber and she's like, oh, I guess we lost the battle, huh? We sure do suck at fighting. And he's like, you sure do suck at fighting. And it's like, do they? Because wasn't the Tyrell army like a major player in the War of Five Kings? And honestly, if they were such a weak, you know, weak militarily to begin with, wouldn't they have been conquered by now already? Like that just seemed like such a hand wavy and also just seems to contradict what we already know about the um, about them from the show. And also like Olena Tyrell, this, you know, the Queen of Thorns, this, you know, this master plotter and schemer, like she's going to let a you know she's gonna let her house have a shitty army like that just it seems very out of character very weird very dumb and also how contrived is it that oh we just roll up on high garden and all their gold is just lying around and that's going to solve our problems with the iron bank like okay it's kind of weird that they just had this money lying around that to exhaust all of the uh coffers of the entire royal house plus the entire lannister family that's all gone uh, but the tyrells just kind of have that money lying around like that a quantity of money that just seems weirdly disproportionate and also the fact that it's just lying around in fucking gold bars like <laughs> no it's the you know when we're talking about this level of wealth like monarchical levels of wealth it's not just in gold, it's in land holdings and military assets and fortresses. And when you say that, you know, when you say that the royal family of Britain is rich, it's, yeah, they have got a pretty fat bank account, but also they literally loan, own all the land in England. It's, it's just, it just seemed like such a hand wavy, like, hey, we got a, man, last week on the show, Andrew said some stuff about how the Iron Bank <laughs> plot line got glossed over i guess we need to solve that i don't know just have them i don't know it's just lying around out in the out in the garden at high garden and just have them find it and then we'll be done Ugh. yeah i mean when 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 um you know mr holmes showed up <laughs> and was like oh i guess i'm putting my foot in my mouth because here's the bravo storyline back from the dead like i thought they just cut it but it's almost like i wish i wish to cut it because it's just like you're just closing it up arbitrarily i don't know yeah this is what, this is what i was talking about just like i feel we're just being like fed plot points like and then this happened and this happened and this happened but don't worry about any of it just don't question it and like because you're right because like the Terrell army is supposed to be big if not great at least big now what they should have done and they had a they had an out for it you've got sam's dad mm -hmm. uh whatever tarley I forget his first name um he's with 
Jamie in when they're walking up to the castle, which implies that the majority of the Terrell Bannermans have switched sides. That's how you describe it. And it makes a lot more sense. Don't just say, oh, we're bad fighters. Right. Say, oh, yeah, our, you know, three quarters of our bannermen deserted us. Okay, that makes a lot more yeah. sense. Done. Well, <laughs> Easy. And the, the Iron Bank plot, like, that actually could have been an interesting subplot for this season and created some tension and drama for Cersei's storyline. Because if she had the bank breathing down her neck, and now the bank is showing up as this kind of third party in all these battles, that, that, that could actually be some interesting stuff to add some, you know some tension and some unpredictability to this season but it's just like nope 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 just wave our hands it's done it's done bye <sighs> yeah i mean i guess we, when we're complaining about our the lack of tension you know in this season narrative tension they sort of solve some of that this episode by doing stupid things <laughs> like essentially arbitrarily switching the weight of power in an almost equally disproportionate way so when Danny rolled up, she's got dragons, she's got a massive fleet, she's got two separate armies of awesomeness, essentially. Maybe three if she's still supposed to have the Golden Company. Um, but then she loses her fleet, which means she can't bring the army anywhere, which means, and we already discussed that they don't want to have, you know, they don't want to just let the dragons lose some Westeros. So now she's got nothing. And now Cersei has eliminated most of her rivals and allied herself with the only big fleet left in the area. So now it seems like the balance of power shifted so dramatically that now the tension is gone, but in the opposite direction. Yeah, it's um, and speaking of hand wavy, just all right, this is solved now. Um, I felt like the agreement between Daenerys and Jon about the dragonglass, that felt really kind of unearned and anticlimactic. Like he was just like, hey, can I have some dragonglass, though? And she's like, I guess. And that's that. Like, it's I mean. Not that I really wanted to see negotiations go on forever about this stupid MacGuffin, but it just felt, it. you know, you, you've got the whole episode where she's like, I don't know about you. You've got to pledge your loyalty to me before I do anything for you. And he's like, oh, I don't know about that, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, conflicting ideas and rationales and philosophies. Ooh, this could be interesting. And our two major players aren't getting along very well. Hmm, this will be interesting. And the end, end of the episode, they're like, no, it's fine. They're good. They're good. They're friends now. It just felt... Again, hand wavy and um, and another thing about that. So there's the scene, the shot in the in that in that scene where he's in the throne room and he's you know kind of trying to make his case to her, and he mentions the army of the dead, and she gives that epic side eye to Tyrion. Like, can you believe what he's talking about? And that was a really cool scene. Like, brought some levity to the show. Great, but on the other hand, it's totally fucking stupid because if there is anybody in the entire universe of Game of Thrones who would believe that there might be a zombie army, it, army, it's Daenerys Targaryen. She literally walked out of a funeral pyre with three thought-to-be-extinct dragon babies. She, uh, a, a honest-to-God witch, cursed her baby and her husband. Um, she went to that weird house of the undying and dealt with honest-to-God wizards and magicians and saw honest-to-God, like, visions of the future. She rides around on the back of a giant black dragon. And, but then, but then for her, so all of that is fine, but zombies, oh no, what are you crazy? Zombies? No. I ride a dragon that everybody thought wasn't real, but, uh, you know, no zombies. That can't possibly be true. It just, she is, she has seen more shit 
supernatural shit than anybody except Bran at this point, and she's going to be skeptical of this. Uh, I just don't buy it. Yeah, I mean, overall, I liked the Danny John, Tyrion, Davos like, yeah. scenes. You know, more than I thought I was going to. I sort of had a picture it was going to be in my mind, and they didn't. It didn't play out that way. Which I was happy for minus. That I think that she's a little bit too quick to dismiss him in these things, like you said. And also, like I said, the wrapping up was a little bit like, uh, I mean, I think we just could use a little more of Tyrion convincing her. Right. And it would have been enough to like get there. Which, you know, I'm glad that Tyrion, it just, I, mean, so he, I think he played his, I think he played his character well. I think it was a good writing for his character yeah. in, that, in those scenes. Um, I'm happy to see because he's been kind of to the side now. I feel kind of bad about that because like it's all about Danny and John and, and Cer- Cersei. And it's like Tyrion is one of the main characters in the show yeah. too. Like, let's not forget, you know, being shunted into that hand position which is you know obviously important but i just i feel like he's not getting his just due in the show but uh this was a good return to form for him um but i wanted to comment on because one of the one of the things i had in my mind is that a lot of people have been thinking for a long time okay are danny and john gonna bone down solve their differences via boning <laughs> right like is that how they're gonna make this work and i really didn't pick up on any maybe they were just People say, oh, they just have bad chemistry, you're not good actors. But, like, I didn't pick up on any intentional even hint that there's supposed to be any sort of attraction or yeah. chemistry between the two of them in these scenes at all. So, for me, that shuts that down. Maybe it could happen later on still. But for me, it increases my suspicion that instead of boning his aunt, John's going to bone his cousin, i.e., Sansa. Because there has been a bunch of things in the show, in this season so far, that made me go, yeah. Like in the first episode, I think, or maybe second episode, where like she grabs his arm and turns him around, the camera like lingers really long at like her grabbing him and like then looking at each other and like looking like a little frustrated. I'm like, mm, is that political frustration or sexual frustration? Like it just made me really just hone in on that. Yeah. And I think they might have been telegraphing it a little bit more last season. I remember taking note of it and also just some of the ways that they have been costuming and making her up like they have been making her more look more like an attractive you know sexy woman rather than you know a a helpless girl and part of that you know if you want the audience to believe the um that the two characters in the screen are falling in love and find each other desirable you have to make them extra desirable to the audience so that you know if i'm hot for you know, if I if I like girls, I look at Sansa and I could be like, I could I could imagine falling in love with her because I'm empathizing with John and, and vice versa if you like John. So from what I understand, they've made Jon Snow as sexy as can be. So I feel like they've been and I also feel like they were emphasizing that a little bit. Um I I think that's more possible now, and I think they've been really kind of setting up a a um parallel between Ned and Kat and John and Sansa a little bit and the whole don't touch my sister bro scene yeah. in uh episode two like uh, he kind of laid that on a little thick so maybe I think yeah. it's more I mean those actors at least have more chemistry together I'll say that yeah all these things put together pointing me in this direction and at first I was like oh that's kind of weird and like it also be a little poetic because like she hated him growing up it maybe they didn't show that much in the show but like in the books she hated him yeah like she did not like him at all and he didn't like her and, you know, she's always pining for this gallant prince to come and, you know, getting realistic with the world. And John's a very realistic person. They're like kind of coming to a similar point of yeah. view in the world, I think. So yeah. I, I don't know. I could see it. And I, you know, it'd be a little, it'd be a little weird to see that taboo of, yeah, it's not actually your sister, but he's been your, she's been your sister your whole life. Yeah. Like, mm, yeah, it's a little creepy, but it's fine. Whatever. We've, um, they've, they've made us empathize for, for Jamie and Cersei. 
Uh, so it, yeah. they certainly can pull it off. Um, but speaking about the, the Stark family, so Bran's a weirdo. Yeah, that was very weird. I mean, I knew he'd be like, I just, I didn't like it. It was too much. Like, I wanted a little bit more like, I'm supposed to be a little wise and stuff, but he's like, like that. He is just like, I mean, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm fine with him conceptually being kind of like Dr. Manhattan now where his like, his omniscience has made him a weirdo and he doesn't really know how to communicate. Thought it was a weird choice that in order to illustrate that to us, to show how alienated he was now from his kind of earthly family was to bring up Sansa's rape. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, uh, that was a weird choice, both yeah. creatively and also like considering how much that has been like a sore part of the series yeah. for a lot of people, a lot of fans and, and things are just like, Ooh, that was not a good scene. You shouldn't have done that. And they brought it up again. It's like, yeah, you do that? I feel like they could have, there were some other choices they could have made there, but yeah, not good. Um, I wanted to ask though, what's your opinion on Littlefinger right now? Uh, I wish the show was giving us more of a sense that he still had cards to play in his master game, but right now it just seems like he's creeping on Sansa. That seems to be his only role in the story right now, which I feel like is uh, a letdown and gross. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel because I always Littlefinger is always one of my favorite characters. Not that I liked him, but I liked his character. He's, so he was always just pulling strings and just like conniving and like gross, but like. It was more the conniving political stuff and his monologues and just like his seek for power from nothing. I just liked that storyline. But yeah, now it's just like, what's his plan here? He just wants to get her, like wants to get with her. Is that his only goal here? Like he seems to be trying to direct her just towards things politically, but I can't see, maybe I'm just an idiot, but I can't see what it is Yeah. besides trying to take over, over John, but like, and not in, to what and end. not in a like, Ooh, this is well-written and he's unpredictable kind of way. It's just like, he doesn't appear to have any motivation. Not just like, I know he's got something on his mind, but I can't tell what it is. It's just like, no, nah, there's nothing here. Yeah, I, it's just very weird. I mean, I, I thought, I don't know. His, once again, I think it's, I don't know if this is the inevitable thing where we start to, as the show has put our characters more together, the side characters get pushed more to the side because we need to spend more time with our heroes. I don't know if that's an inevitable thing, but uh, our heroes and villains, I guess. And Cersei and Jamie are getting a lot of screen time, but well, I just, uh, I don't know. I think, um, I think if the end of Littlefinger's story is just as some like sexual danger for Sansa, if that's what we reduce the character to, I feel like that's really a, um, uh, that's really a tragedy. I agree hundred percent. And saying that if, you know, Varys just slipped, like, you know, Mel Melisandre telling Varys to leave. It's like, if he just slips off into the night one night, I'm also going to be like, what a waste. Cause like my favorite characters from the books are Varys, Littlefinger, Illyrio and Doran Martell, the puppet masters, the people who are yeah. pulling all the strings that aren't care like aren't aren't character um aren't perspective characters. All Those are my favorite characters because you don't know what's going right. on and you only get what they're doing through other characters' perspective. And you're like, man, what are they up to? And you know that they have an influence on the plot. Yeah. But I think that about so, uh I think that about does it for us this week. Yep. We'll be back next week with uh more of this and more hopefully no longer griping about Game of Thrones. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like I said, we grew up to watch this episode, but I think this was the best episode of the season so far. <laughs> oh, well. All right, guy. Well, I hope you have a good week. You too. Later.